theater in the world. Uh, Ryan Stiles is the governor of this place, and uh, <laughs> he does his improv here as well to keep sharp when we're not on the road with Who's Live, which we are, by the way, and we'll be coming to a town in California near you in November. Uh, in the next couple weeks, we'll be in uh, Gee Whiz, Marin, Santa Rosa, um, and Modesto, which is a garden spot. If you've ever been to California, <laughs> if you're at, well, never mind. In any case, uh, uh, I want to thank Ryan for letting me uh, play in his playhouse tonight. Uh, he, of course, isn't here uh, because uh, showing support to a friend would be something that's an anathema to his cold, cold heart. <laughs> his, the, 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 in, the pitch black tar that runs through his veins uh, is really the only fault in an otherwise magnanimous human being. Um, and uh, no, he, the Seahawks are playing tonight. And of course, uh, you know, compulsive gambling is a real issue, isn't it? Thank you. I thought that was funnier than that. Uh, uh, by the time this drops, we'll have uh, already done our gig a week past in uh, Bellingham. Uh, we were at uh, Western Washington University last night, the home of the Vikings, because, as you know, the northern, to describe it to the people who are listening out there in Poopcast Land, and by the way, if you're listening in Poopcast Land, this is an awesome, awesome time to split a molly. And um, <laughs> let this shit happen. Help me by being high, won't you? Um, the, uh, the, the Vikings uh, is the, is the uh, mascot of Western Washington University located right here in Bellingham. And uh, as you know, the influx of Vikings into this area uh, it made it a natural choice for a mascot. I guess, I guess Tacoma's got that narwhal thing wrapped up, so you really couldn't use that one. Although the narwhal, a much more romantic figure. Uh, uh, I, I know you're like, well, Vikings had horns on their helmets. Um, narwhals have horns on their face. And... Uh, they traverse the world, so, you know, get up on that. And also, their tusk is a spiral, which is completely bizarre. And, uh, uh, you know, whenever you read about narwhals, which I'm sure right before you got here, you were listening to a book on tape about them. And, or an audio book, as we call them now. I actually, called it, I actually called it a book on tape. You might have been using your payphone after you turned off your hi-fi. And then uh, you, you finished your job as a cooper, putting some staves on a barrel. And then uh, you took a carriage over here, and you're... Uh, your horseless carriage and uh, you had to wear your duster and your goggles and uh, uh, on the way you were listening to a book on tape from 1986 written uh, originally written by Michael Moorcock and uh, <laughs> when one reads about narwhals the explanation for the tusk is that it's like hair or a nail and you're like fuck you it's a tusk <laughs> I really hate that one you know what I mean like rhino's horns are simply a thing of hair. No, they're extraordinary. If our hair grew in the shape of a bloody spiral tusk at the top of our head, we could be a prouder race than we are. <laughs> we would be the narwhal people. And then there'd be all those moments where you'd be like offshore and be like, and then you'd hear in the fucking, you know, uh, unbelievable comprehensive depths of the inky black ocean, uh, uh, an answering cry from countless fathoms away and thousands of yards below the surface where the sun never reaches, where only glowing, glistening, fluorescent creatures flow around like unbelievable sea cucumbers and uh, illuminated turkeys in the, 
in the comprehensive terrain that is the other world. And uh, you'll hear, and that's the other narwhal answering you. And then you're like, are we in Tacoma? And then the other narwhal goes, yeah, that's why it smells all fucked up. <laughs> smells like burning baby carriages. Um, so it's awesome to be back here in Bellingham, home of the white people. And... Uh, <laughs> Boy, if you like wearing sportswear and a hoodie, you have come to the right goddamn town. Uh, there's other fashion choices, you guys, you know? I would go, if I lived here, uh, first of all, I wouldn't because I don't want to hip you out too hard. But secondly, uh, you also have the recreational marijuana here legally in Washington State, which I would like to refer to as the vocational marijuana. Because uh, it's more of a full-time job with me. Um, <laughs> So having that so quick, uh, free, you know, easily within your grasp uh, that all you have to be is uh, 21 years old and produce an ID and you're able to go buy some. Uh, um, if the show's not funny tonight, wow. Uh, this one's on you, bitches. Uh, for realsies. Uh, if I lived here, I would dress like Robert Ryan in the movie Bad Day at Black Rock. That is to say plaid, buffalo plaid jackets and red jackets with little uh, uh, hunting cap type things, not baseball caps, but the hunting caps from the 50s that had the flaps that go up on them and whatnot, and high-waisted khaki pants and, and with the bottoms rolled up and like brown boots that were ankle length and shit, and I'd lean against uh, uh, my car and flick cigarettes at people as they drove by and whatnot. Um, you, guys, you guys go the hoodie tennis shoe white people route, which I think is beautiful. It says to me two things. Someone's doing Pilates and... Someone's going to be making bad whale art before this day is over. <laughs> There's two things the Northwest is noted for here up in the misty climbs. We're, we're but moments from Canada here uh, to describe it to our listeners out there. Uh, there's people listening, as you know, in Antwerp and far past that, out in Indonesia and whatnot. And as they hear this come over their wireless crackling in the night or their ham radio as they seek my frequency about the world and illuminating off of them, bouncing off of the uh, a Van Allen radiation belt, uh, the signal weakly pours down to them and they hear it in its staticky form. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to them, like, like a bad Donald Duck impression. And... Um, <laughs> They need to know where we are. We're above Seattle. So if you're uh, familiar with the contiguous 48, uh, we're at the very apex of uh, where America reaches up to. Uh, the 54th parallel is right above us. And then uh, next stop, Vancouver, and uh, like that. And then, of course, Victoria, uh, which is a small uh, principality inside of British Columbia IA. Um, that it, um, my understanding is Victoria, in the 70s, died of quaint. And... Uh, <laughs> It's been on live support ever since then with chip shops and red phone boxes and alder smoked salmon. But there's two things the great Northwest is known for. One, an inconceivable amount of moisture. Uh, so it's an unfortunate place if you wear spectacles because uh, you're bound to not see anything. And uh, isn't that a beautiful mountain? I don't, I don't know. It's misting on my glasses. And... Uh, alder smoked salmon, virtually available everywhere. Of course, we're in Bellingham, so this is the home of boutique artisanal food and co-ops and a Johnny-come-lately Whole Foods. That's how down-by-law Bellingham is. They had a co-op before, which was evidently owned by the workers who uh, would march every day with hammers and sickles out in front, uh, <laughs> defying their fucking masters to uh, drain their uh, blood as laborers. Uh, and, and then the Whole Foods open, uh, or as Ryan told me whole paycheck because you can buy a yogurt and a bag of granola at Whole Foods and go, really? 
that seems a bit strenuous. And then, uh, would you like a bag? And you're like, yeah, I'd like a bag. And they're like, wow. <laughs> really? I killed the earth just now because I wanted a fucking bag to take my stuff home? Really? I killed the earth. Really? Really? Go to China and take issue with them, okay? Go somewhere else where they're just pouring effluvium into the atmosphere every second of the goddamn day. Uh, go, go to the Arctic Circle and, and talk an iceberg down. <laughs> Keep a glacier from fissuring, all right? Just do me a favor and rent a condo off my dick. <laughs> so many places, so much time, so little to do, so much to see. Uh, uh, we're going to be, uh, let's see, we're here tonight, and then uh, we're in, fuck you, we're in... Uh, <laughs> I'll have, done, uh, I'll have done, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas at the Hollywood Bowl with Danny Elfman, and it was fantastic. I just want to tell you that. Uh, I literally haven't, but of course, by the time this drops, I will have. And uh, we did it last year, and it was just the greatest fun I've ever had in my entire life. There's very few gigs that I take an enormous... I mean, I obviously take an enormous amount of uh, pride and try to do as good a job as I can. Not tonight, but almost every other <laughs> night of the six years and uh, that we've been brought pop, count, poop, cut, vod, and casting. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, being on the road with Ryan and, uh, and his group, I can't remember the name of it, and uh, <laughs> who's live anyway, and uh, uh, um, uh, all the other things I get to do... Um, Doing a, a symphony orchestra with a 20-member chorus and five singers and Danny Elfman and Pee Wee Herman and the, the unbelievably magnificent Catherine O'Hare. Uh, yeah, uh, she's touched me. I've touched her. We've called each other friend. Uh, not in a rude, awful, not in a Trumpian way, but in a real nice, in a collegial colleague way. Uh, uh, you can't imagine how exciting it is. I really feel, and I, I don't know how to describe this, it's, uh, Danny is such a, uh, 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 yes, I get to call him Danny. Uh, uh, Mr. Elfman is such a, 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 a tremendous composer in the style of uh, f uh, perhaps uh, uh, James Horner, Nina Rhoda, you know what I'm talking about? The, the scores that he does are magnificent. He's in Japan uh, last week uh, doing a, a, the Tim Burton, Danny Elfman uh, symphony show, and then uh, with us at the Hollywood Bowl, and having to hear it with a full orchestra all around you, like I'm right in front of the violas and the violins are right behind me, and when they saw into a number, it is just tremendous. Uh, I, I become completely exhilarated, and I almost burst into tears the first night, because uh, I felt like I was in a Verde opera or something. It was so worthy, and I, I, I'm a comedian. I play in dives, and uh, uh, low places where hugger-muggers frequent, and those who uh, would, yeah, exactly. You, you're like, what is a hugger-mugger? Never mind you. I, I, I play in body houses and uh, uh, saloons, and uh, I'm around alcohol and low types uh, a good deal of my life, and uh, ergo my uh, vocabulary, which I wish was a little less profane. Um, ergo why kittens is in the show, because I was ex using kittens as an expletive to stop using the F-bomb every two fucking seconds, and <laughs> kittening doesn't work there. Uh, uh, having said that, uh, uh, it's so fun to be part of a giant undertaking, I guess is what I'm getting at at the end of the day. Um, to be with hundred, uh, over 100 people on stage and uh, to sing to a picture that people have taken to their heart. When we did the picture, uh, uh, yes, I call movies pictures. I'm from, I'm from the 40s. When we did the picture uh, in 1992, I think it started, 93. Uh, is this boring to you? No. Because I'm going to tell you about what happened, if you, if you don't mind for a second. 
um, I, was, I was living in San Francisco at the time as a, a, a rogue cavalier, and I was uh, uh, summoned from my abode one day. Uh, they, I was given, and this will give you an idea of what year it was, a cassette tape. <laughs> and it was uh, the opening song of the picture, which is uh, This is Halloween. And we were given the cassette tape and a set of lyrics. And I memorized it and did different monster voices for every single line in the, in the song. And then we were called in front of, uh, 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 w- it was an audition, and I had to go to L.A. to do like the MTV half-hour comedy hour or something like that, <laughs> which I think I wore a skull shirt on. That was like 1991, 92. And uh, uh, Danny and Denise Denovi, who was one of the producers on the movie, were there. And I got up and I said, um, I'd like to be, I'd like to open. I was the first person. Because I said, can I go early? I have to catch a flight to Los Angeles. So they're like, yeah. So I came in at like 11 a.m. I'd memorized my song. And I came in and I went, I'd like to start by being fawning, obsequious, and sycophantic, if I may. <laughs> and they said, proceed. <laughs> and I said, your music reminded me of Harold Arlen. And uh, he was like, oh, I'm influenced by all the... Harold Arlen, FYI, uh, <laughs> since this is Bellingham, and I, I will explain. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to explain. Uh, this is, this is Proopcast 101. Uh, Harold Arlen uh, wrote a little musical called The Wizard of Oz and um, he wrote the greatest, greatest children's song about witches of all time right? Uh, and Yip Harburg yes, Yip, they were Jewish um, that was his nickname uh, Yip Harburg and him, uh, Yip wrote the lyrics and Harold Arlen wrote the uh, melodies for The Wizard of Oz and they wrote Ding Dong the Witch is Dead Witch Old Witch, The Wicked Witch and uh, I don't think there's a finer song in any children's musical of all time and then of course if I were the king of the forest <laughs> and not, uh, not duke and not prince my regal robes of the forest would be satin and not cotton not chintz um, and our favorite part yeah So uh, I used flattery uh, right away, and uh, I got the picture, and uh, my friend Debbie Durst, who's Will Durst's uh, wife and is a, a tremendous comedian in her own right, and one very influential on me in my life and one of my best friends in the world, um, she plays the dead mom in it and the dead baby who goes, there goes Christmas at the end. Um, <laughs> We came up, uh, there's three of us from San Francisco that got it. Me, her, and a cat named Glenn Walters, who played, uh, it was a lead singer with a group called the Hoodoo Rhythm Devils. And Glenn Walters had a total whiskey and cigarettes voice. Like, my voice is a, uh, as someone described it, a valley girl on Valium. Um, <laughs> I know that about myself. Believe me, Jeff Davis, who you'll know from uh, Who's Live Anyway, and of course, uh, a very small, very uh, uh, open micy podcast called Harmontown. Um... <laughs> Jeff uh, always makes fun of my voice because we were in Illinois and we went by Skaki and I went, Skaki? And he was like, you just said Skaki. And I'm like, that's how I talk. And he was like, it's not Skaki, it's Skoki. And I'm like, for you. (laughs) For the people who forge their own path of pronunciation, it's pronounced Skaki. Um, (laughs) Glenn Walters sang like this. Hey, lovely, it's even funny all the second. really fucking I'm not even doing him justice right (laughs) like he was bluesy and Glenn was the werewolf in the movie and Glenn could sing in two tones at once he had such a striated vocal cord or whatever the fuck you call it I don't know anything about music Um, he he could sing uh, two tones right so he could you know uh, 
a higher tone of an uh, at the same note, at the same time, which was extraordinary to hear. So here's my story, and no one's ever going to hear it, and no one's ever going to know except you guys, and everyone listens to the show. <laughs> we were recording in Los Angeles, and it was lunchtime, and me and all the singers were there, and there was loads of fantastic singers on there. Look up on the credits, and you'll see that all of them are sight readers, and, uh, which means they can read music and sing along to it immediately. And one time through, and boom, right? You know, like, these are professional singers. Then there's me and Debbie, who are comedians, and Glenn, who's a fucking blues singer. Uh, but we had monster voices, right? So, because Danny's a genius. And, uh, and Henry Selleck directed the movie. Uh, people go, isn't it Tim Burton's movie? Tim Burton ha- came up with the idea uh, uh, and, and the concept and all of that. We never saw Tim Burton or worked with Tim Burton. So I'm not going to claim that I fucking know Tim Burton. Henry Selleck, who directed James and the Giant Peach, we worked with all the time. And Danny constantly because we had to sing all the songs. So we're down there and we're recording. And uh, we go out and it's lunch break. And at lunch break, we eat our lunch. And then we go outside and Glenn Walters goes, you guys want to get high? And we're like, oh, fuck to the yeah, right? So we, we smoked a couple bowls, right? And Glenn, by the way, at that point was wearing um, overall shorts and a, a railroad engineer, like, yeah, like a, a, a big apple flat cap. Oh, fuck yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm bored, man. Well, we got to go. Let's go get drunk or something, man. You know, like, this is crazy. You know what Locke was recording on this shit and Locke was and Greg and Debbie was about. So I'm fucking high. <laughs> we go back inside, right? And um, uh, now the recording has resumed. And Danny goes, Greg, you're up. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> sorry. I walk into the fucking studio. Danny doesn't know this. I've never told him. And I get in front of the microphone, and I have to sing the part in Making Christmas or whatever. Won't they be impressed? I am a genius, right? So I sing it, and Danny comes on the fucking uh, uh, speaker and goes, Greg, you're totally flat. What the fuck? And I'm like, let me try it again. And at that point, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dissolving. I'm recording a movie and I'm higher than a dog. <laughs> I sang it maybe eight, ten times. And finally, they're like, fine, stop, come out of the booth. <laughs> so I had a candy bar. I'd come in from Toronto and I had a candy bar, a Lint bar. I don't know if you're familiar with the Swiss brand of chocolate called Lint. And Danny goes, I wish I had some chocolate. And I go, I've got a Lint bar. And he goes, a what bar? A Lint bar? A bar made of lint? And I'm like, no, it's a chocolate bar. Here, let me get you some. And I give it to him. And uh, then he said, uh, I'm in the studio, and I'm in front of the mic, and there's a bunch of people around. And he comes up, and he goes, Greg, I want to tell you something. And I go, not now, Danny. I'm with people. <laughs> Dark look. Dark look. And I went, I'm joking, of course! <laughs> I was wearing, at one of the recording sessions, skull shorts, giant tennis shoes that had red uh, uh, tongues on them, uh, a skull shirt, a leather jacket, bracelets, um, um, fucking skull necklaces, whatnot, glasses, giant hair. And I was walking through Los Angeles airport, and a guy, I was 30-something at the time, a cat who was 20 years older than me walked by wearing the exact same outfit. (laughs) And that was the moment I switched to suits. Two significant things. I saw my future. I looked like a roadie for Alice Cooper, and I couldn't 
fucking handle it. I was like, if I'm Molly Hatchett's roadie at the age of 50, it's going to be over. Uh, and so I switched to wearing um, suits and shit like that. Is anybody working here? Yeah. <laughs> will, you, will you go in the dressing room and get the ball of vodka out of the freezer? Thank you. Yeah, it's that show. Hey, everybody. You know how it goes. Sometimes below the equator, it can get a little scrunchy. Tommy John is the 21st century men's underwear brand that's redefined comfort for guys everywhere, including me. It's unbelievable. They've combined feather light, breathable fabrics with innovative design for a fit so perfect. It's almost like wearing nothing at all, except it's not. You're wearing something. And it's impossible to get those uh, scrunchels uh, down below the equator belt. Tommy John's next generation design even includes the patented horizontal quick draw fly. Wow, that one's really going to shake up the whole universe. And they've got a lot more than unbelievable underwear. Their undershirts go on like second skin and they never come untucked. Even their socks are engineered to stay up all day long. For a truly mind-blowing undergarment experience, look no further than Tommy John. All Tommy John underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guarantee. Tommy John, don't adjust, you don't have to. Hurry to TommyJohn.com slash proofs to experience universe-changing comfort and get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash proofs for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash proofs. I thank you. Uh, because it's Halloween, uh, uh, and you're like, but it's not. But like, yeah, it is, right? <laughs> Think about that. Get your mind around that. Uh, as I said, we're going to be in uh, Portland uh, the 17th through the 20th of November, and then at the Bell House in Brooklyn on the 25th of uh, November, uh, which is a fantastic gig for our Brooklyn friends. Then in Vancouver, which is close enough for all y'all to go to, uh, that'll be the December 1st through 3rd. The podcast will be on the 1st. That'll be at a place called Yuck Yucks. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. No ice? So, will you bring me a cup of ice as well? Thank you so much. Um, oh, your tasks aren't done. Chop, fucking chop. Uh, then we'll be in San Francisco the 28th through the 31st at the Punchline. And then they, uh, uh, in January the 26th through the 28th at Vermont at the uh, Vermont Comedy Club with a podcast there as well. And uh, look for us on the road with Who's Live anyway, as I said. Uh, it should be a stone gas, as they say. Uh, and jumping right in here, we've got to start the show. Um, <laughs> I'm tempted to uh, text Ryan right now and go like, how are the Seahawks doing? Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Here, have a sticker. I, I didn't give you one before. <laughs> What's your name, volunteer? Chris. No, no, your real name. Um, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. That was a joke, but here everybody was like, no, he said his name was Chris, you guys. We've gotten presents, and they're awesome beyond measure. James, who uh, actually bought the book, uh, gave me some dank, which is legal, so hooray for James. And uh, he gave me this awesome bottle of vodka called Crew, K-R-U, with an, is it an umlaut, or what's the other one that's two dots over a U? Yeah, as in Motley Crew, E-U-U. Umlaut? There's another word for it. Umlaut? All right, I'll go with I'll go with you guys. There's a lot of definitive head nodding going on here in Bellingham right now. A lot of white people... No, umlaut, Greg. My mother's from Bavaria, and she makes me cherry strudel, and it's umlaut. Uh, and it's the most darling bottle. 
Um, it's metal, and it has what appears to be a jogging water bottle top. So, as James said to me, you can drink all the vodka and then fill it with water. And I was like, yeah, and then you can jog on a very small path. Because there's about four ounces of water here. So if you jog more than a quarter of a mile, you're going to be like, fuck, I am thirsty. I just smoked a bone and drank a shitload of vodka. I, don't, I, I need more water than this. Oh, my God, I'm parched. Where's my parade? Sharon gave us this lovely book here. Uh, it's called The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove by Christopher Moore. We've talked about Christopher Moore on the show before. He wrote A Practical Guide to Demon Keeping, and he wrote a tremendous book about Jesus called Lamb. If you ever really, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, golly. Here's what it says here. Also by Christopher Moore, Practical Demon Keeping. Coyote, oh, so I got the name wrong. Uh, Coyote Blue, Bloodsucking Fiends, Island of the Sequin Love Nun. I didn't read that one, but I did read You Suck, which starts with the line, You Suck. Uh, let's just read the beginning of this here. Um, he's quite good, even though he wears a baseball cap all the time. There he is at the back with his baseball cap on, and it says, Lust Lizard uh, on his baseball cap. Um, Lamb is uh, the story of uh, uh, a prophet who's uh, hitherto been unknown in the Bible who's brought back to uh, read his book into the Bible by an archangel of the Lord. And uh, he is Jesus' childhood friend. And I'm not going to spoil the book for you, but the opening scene is, he, well, he says, when, he, when I first met Jesus, I lived in Bethlehem, right? When I first met Jesus, uh, he was sitting with his brother James, and James was smashing a lizard with a rock, and Jesus would put it in his mouth, and it would come back to life, and he'd throw it back down, and James would hit it in <laughs> It's that awesome. It's that awesome. The premise of the book is, and I'm not giving anything away, what happened to Jesus between the time he was born and the time he became the prophet that we know him as now, right? Because that's the big elemental question that all of us who are sentient beings have asked ourselves. How come he's born and it's a glorious moment and born this day as the savior in the city of David and all that, and then 32 years later, out of nowhere, uh, after having been a carpenter and possibly having a family, maybe being a rabbi, we don't know any of this. He had a family, and we know that Mary was you know, an educated lady, and we know that Joseph was quite older than Mary, but really the facts are scanty on the ground. It's inevitable that Jesus lived. I want to say on Halloween that... <laughs> In order for you to believe in Satan, you must believe in Jesus, right? Everyone who loves Satan, and who doesn't? We all love Satan. Because Satan, as Bill Hicks said, has all the good bands. And Jesus has Debbie Boone, and uh, Satan has Ariana Grande. Because in hell, she's going to lick a donut and then make you fucking eat it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh... If, if you, you have to believe in the Lord. Why do you have to believe that Jesus existed? Two reasons. One, the Romans, who were meticulous in some areas, and of course hedonistic in almost every other area, um, recorded that there were Christians, or Christians as they were first known, because it's a Greek name, uh, 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 maybe 40, 50 years after Jesus died. And when Rome burned under Nero, uh, Nero's fine empirical administration, which we had a brief glimpse of during when W was president, um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, look, the whole country's on fire. Look, New Orleans is underwater. They <laughs> went down to Georgia. He said, fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. Devil's in the house of the rising sun. Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dew. Uh, during that era, uh, you know, 
uh, Nero blamed the fire in Rome on the Christians. Uh, they were his scapegoat. He scapegoated the Christians then. So clearly by 50 years into uh, the ADs, uh, or, uh, or what is it after the CEs, we don't call them BC anymore, um, the, uh, uh, the Christians were a known entity to the Roman people, known enough to blame a fucking fire on them and make them a scapegoat. And of course, they, then they were living in underground you know, uh, cisterns and whatnot and meeting sub, sub, sub Rosa and uh, no cross, no cross. The cross is a later invention, right? As Bill Hicks said, really wearing a cross is like wearing a gun and saying, hey, Jackie, just thinking about JFK. <laughs> you really think Jesus wants to remember that fucking moment of his life? <laughs> what about when I walked on the water? That was a pretty good day. What about the loaves and the fishes? That was an awesome day. How about when I fucking made the blind to see and the crippled to walk? That was a fucking awesome day. How about when I went to the wedding and they were like, fucking, we're out of booze. And I'm like, no, you're not, man. There is booze. I am Jesus. And there is fucking booze. That's why he's cool. That's why he's cool. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit of the earth. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven shall be theirs. At no point. Did Jesus berate gays or women or homeless people or the poor or anything like that? So all Christians you hear that berate gays, women, the poor, and, uh, and are uh, supportive of war and conflict and hatred are against the teachings of, the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus, um, as John Cooper Clark said, was Jesus Christ a decent bloke? Are you the fucking business? <laughs> Somebody say something. There we go. Uh, so she was murdered. You wanted to see the report. It says cardiac arrest. But ultimately, cardiac arrest is what kills everyone. Catch a bullet in the head, get hit by a car, eat some poison. The heart tends to stop. Eat some poison? Just an example, Crow. It's not my field. If I were you, I'd check and see if she had a history of heart problems. You said it wasn't your field. It's not. The spider hit a key and the laser printer whirred in the darkness somewhere. Uh, Christopher Moore, thank you so much, Sharon, for that book. Um, a young lady named Bree outside was with her uh, boyfriend. She's written me an extensive letter here that I have not read, obviously. Uh, what was your, was it your boyfriend or your husband, Bree? It's my roommate. Oh. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> What's your name, Rumi? Chris. No, you're not. mean your real name, Bo. <laughs> I have a St. Christopher that I carry with me. I know he's been defrocked and no one's supposed to care anymore. It was quite some time ago. But I still, you know, patron saint of travelers. I'm not going to read your letter, Bree, but I am going to open this bag, what you have given me. It's a brown paper bag. I shall describe it to you. It's not one of those flat-bottomed paper bags. It's one of those um, pointy bottom paper bags that nothing will fit in but a small uh, t-shirt or piece of fabric or a paper or a book or whatnot. And now I'm ripping it open. She stapled it, or someone stapled it, very vehemently. <laughs> Strenuous stapling. My strength is... My strength is fading. I can barely... are holding 
Christ. <laughs> Judas Priest. Here we go. Here we go, Bree. Oh, oh my, there's more paper. There's white paper now. There's that white paper that's wrapped around things. Thank you for this. I'm going to open it up here. Oh, let's just take it out. It's a tea towel. I can sense that. Also, she told me. Uh, it's a tea towel, and it says, This pussy votes. Jennifer, who's here in spirit and says hi to everyone, uh, uh, urged me uh, before the show uh, to urge everyone to vote here. I know this is Washington State, and there's very little likelihood. Uh, Nate Silver at 538 has Washington State at 99%. Um, But I urge everyone who's within the sound of my voice, and even people in Europe, to please vote. Uh, Whoever you're going to vote for, uh, voting is imperative. Um, uh Uh-uh. Um, well, uh, there, you've heard a lot in the last few weeks from the bloviating orange yam from the center of evil from the, the, uh, uh, the jar of tang with the spaniel on its head from the pictures of Mars from Siegfried and Roy's basement the orangitude that is the David Copperfeldian uh, fascistic evil of a uh, crump um, that voting doesn't count and it's rigged. I assure you that it counts and that it is not rigged. And uh, uh, so it's imperative. It is completely imperative that not only do you vote, but ro- uh, aside from Hillary, uh, or as we're now calling her, Coolery, um, that you vote for all the down ticket uh, uh, Democrats as well. Um, what will make this country better in the next eight years is... Oh, did, you, did I say eight? <laughs> what will make this country better is uh, if the Congress and the Senate are uh, democratic. Therefore, we will be able to get uh, Supreme Court justices, um, legislation, things like that. Everything that they have blocked Obama for the last eight years. Um, it's so imperative, you guys. It's so imperative. And um, it's, it's, it, uh, it's a, a wonderful opportunity, is what it is. Let's look at it for what it is. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's a fascist running who's basically a white supremacist neo-Nazi, and this is 1930s Germany, and we're having to hear bloviating and um, inconceivable uh, propaganda that uh, shocks us to our very core. Every day, uh, it's a, another nuclear bomb. Um, having said that, the obverse is that um, it's possible for um, the forces of right to take control and understand that we can move incrementally forward in a very positive way in the next eight years and get shit done that is going to blow everyone's fucking mind open. Um, So, here we go. Uh, uh, This is what Hillary said. Uh, The Chicago Cubs uh, have won the uh, National League uh, pennant and uh, it's a, a rare occurrence the last time of course it happened was terrible terrible tragedy with the Chicago Cubs why do you bring this up Greg? Well one I'm a baseball fan and two uh, Joel Murray uh, is uh, in the group with me and Ryan and Jeff Davis and Joel Murray is from Chicago yes his family is the Murray family and um, uh, uh, we went to a Chicago Cub game last year and watched them beat the Dickens out of the Cardinals and then of course it all went horribly wrong <laughs> as it does for the Cubs so many times uh, uh, the last time they were in the World Series was 1945 um, 
In other words, when uh, they play uh, this week against the Cleveland Indians, and the last time the Cleveland Indians were in the series was 1997, the last time they won it was 1948. The last time the Chicago Cubs won the World Series was 1908. That's 1908 for you guys. <laughs> um, there were moving pictures of a very primitive kind. Um, flight was quite new. The best pitcher on the Cubs team in 1908 was named Peter Centennial Mordecai Three-Fingered Brown. When he was growing up in the Midwest, he had lost almost all of his forefinger and half of his second finger in a threshing accident. He came to the big leagues with a curveball that was insurmountable that broke inside on right-handed hitters. And he won 29 games in 1908, and the Cubs beat the Detroit Tigers with Tyrus Raymond Cobb uh, batting third in that lineup. That's how long it has been. <laughs> Gas lamps and telegraphs. No such thing as no smoking anywhere. No woman could vote. Automobiles were sexy. And if you won one, because there was a, an award for the person with the highest batting average called the Chalmers, and what you received was a Chalmers car, and it was an open-air car with a handbrake, and there's pictures of Ty Cobb and his with goggles and a fucking coat on and shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this means the world to Chicago. And the last time the Cleveland Indians won the World Series um, was 1948. And uh, I hesitate to bring this up, and yet, watch me work. <laughs> Satchel Paige pitched on that team. He was uh, brought up in July of that year by Lou Boudreau, who won the MVP and hit uh, 355 that year, who played shortstop for the team, is also the manager. Paige was 6-1 and one that year as a reliever and spot starter. Uh, started his first two games and won them both. And there were sellout crowds everywhere he went. He was the first black pitcher to pitch in the American League. He was the first black pitcher to pitch in the World Series, which he did not appear in quite enough in 1948. And Cleveland beat the Boston Braves. Yeah, yeah. not the fucking Atlanta Braves, uh, but the Boston Braves. Mm. So there's a lot of history, history going into this dance. Hillary Clinton is from Illinois, and uh, this is what she had to say years ago. Being a Cubs fan prepares you for life and Washington. <laughs> so she signed a, a, a Cubs jersey uh, in uh, December of, 1915, uh, 19, of 2015. She told the man that 2016 was the year both she and the Cubs would win. That's from Dan America's Twitter site. And then the first comment underneath is, she rigged the election and the World Series. <laughs> In case you think that this uh, presidential election is particularly odious, which it is, and that uh, the participants are beyond, beyond, and that um, we've reached the level of discourse that is at the fifth grade, uh, uh, I'll call you out in the tan bark level, uh, near the monkey bars situation, and that the level of discourse intellectually has descended from one of uh, uh, highfalutin um, you know, uh, speechitudes to... Uh, absolutely schoolyard New Jersey bullshit is, and I only say New Jersey and I should say Queens, wherever Crump is from. Um, the 1824 and 1828 elections with Andrew Jackson were marred and um, noted by um, 
Andrew Jackson married a woman who was not quite divorced when he married her, and uh, his opponents called her a whore. <laughs> and Andrew Jackson, because he had killed several people, he was our seventh and sexiest president. If you take out your $20 bill, you will see his rockabilly fucking hairdo. <laughs> Andrew Jackson had been, of course, uh, we've discussed this, but I'll go over ever so briefly, a teenage prisoner of war of the British during the revolution where he was tortured and had a lifelong animosity toward the British, as well as, of course, Indians. <laughs> he was a slave owner. Uh, the Kentuckians were uh, sent, uh, there was a regiment of Kentucky, or a brigade of Kentuckians showed up in the War of 1812, about 1814, uh, to New Orleans, where um, uh, I guess he was Colonel Jackson then was commanding a, a, a unit. And um, they brought no guns with them. They only had sparse guns. And he said, I've never seen a Kentuckian without a plug of tobacco, a gun, and a pack of cards. <laughs> Andrew Jackson... Uh, had John C. Calhoun at his vice president, who'd been the vice president of the previous administration, which shows you how bizarre politics were in the 19th century. The day after Van Buren was elected president, Jackson took the time to reflect on his own presidency with a friend. When asked if he had any regrets about the last eight years, this was his response, that I didn't shoot Henry Clay and I didn't hang John C. Calhoun. <laughs> so this is nothing new. America has always been a shit-kicker redneck. The reason why Andrew Jackson's called Old Hickory is his troops thought he was hard. His troops. He had malaria. He fought a duel against a gentleman, and he let the other gentleman go first, who was known to be a crack shot, and who could fire off four or five rounds into a silver dollar at 24 paces. Um, the, he wore a, a large coat so that his frame would be uh, uh, less uh, visible and that his heart would be less in uh, the line of sight. Um, his opponent shot him right near the heart and Andrew Jackson did not move or react in any way and took a minute and leveled his pistol and shot the fucker in the abdomen and he died a couple days later. And they said to him, Andrew, you didn't fucking flinch when you got shot right near the heart and he went, if you'd shot me in the brain I'd have still killed him. <laughs> They don't make presidents like that anymore. <laughs> it's Halloween, so let's spin this music here. Um, a couple of uh, last year, I believe we did uh, Jeremy Irons doing uh, uh, the Raven by Poe. Sp spin the next one, Pete. Um, this year we're going to do uh, a, a cat named uh, Willie the Shake. Um, this won't take long, but I think you'll like it. Um, the beginning of Act Four, Scene One, as found in uh, uh, the Scottish play. It's very bad luck as a performer to say the words. The Scottish play, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, someone went yes, and everyone else was like, no, but we don't care. <laughs> I'm going to read you the stage directions because they're superb. I'm assuming this is from a folio from the 17th century. A dark cave, in the middle, a cauldron boiling, period, thunder, full stop. Enter the three witches. Turn this up a little bit. We need more mood. <laughs> Remember, this is the moment when they're bribing him by giving him a serum that'll make him king of Scotland, and he drinks it down. But it's before he comes. This is their curse that they're investing on the world. LAUGHTER 
hold me. <laughs> Thrice the branded calf hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. Harpier cries, tis time, tis time. Round about the cauldron go, in the poison entrails throw, toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fillet of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. Double, louder, double, <laughs> toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, ma and gulf. Of the ravenous salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of you, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, del ditch delivered by a drabe, make the gruel thick and slab, and thereto a tiger's chaudron. For the ingredients of our cauldron, double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Uh, I think this describes the election. Nothing describes the evil that's been unleashed more than that. <laughs> We've seen a bunch of deals with the devil. We've seen Crump impugn Hillcat and say that she's the devil. Literally, say that she's the devil in this day and age. A man is impugning a woman that she's a devil. Um, so if you think this has no resonance, oh, how wrong you are. <laughs> Baudelaire um, has everything to tell us about everything. Um, I was going to read the first poem of the book, but it's quite long, so I'm going to read a shorter one. However, I will read this. Um, Baudelaire, if you didn't know, um, was chucked out of his parents' home, uh, became a drug taker in Paris, and wrote uh, this book, which is called The Flowers of Evil, and is uh, most Halloween. Um, this is the, uh, the uh, three drafts of a preface by Charles Baudelaire. One preface. France is passing through a period of vulgarity. Sound familiar? <laughs> Paris, a center radiating universal stupidity. Despite Moliere and Beranger, no one would have ever believed that France would take to the road of progress at such a rate. Matters of art, terraire, incognite. Great men are stupid. Here's the poem. Spin the next one, Pete. Super fucking loud. <laughs> It's not so long. <laughs> By the way, this is from the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. <laughs> Your cadaverous pallor betrays an oral foreboding. 
Could it be you sense a disquieting metamorphosis? There's no funner holiday than Halloween. I'm from San Francisco. Fuck Christmas. Halloween was our holiday. Charles Baudelaire. I will read it as Jeremy Irons. Therefore, to make it more entertaining. The gladly dead. In a soil thick with snails and rich as grace. I have longed to dig myself a deep, good deep grave. There to stretch my old bones at ease. And sleep in oblivion like a shark in a wave. Wills I detest and tombstones set in rows before I'd beg a tear of anyone. I'd rather go alive and let the crows bleed the last scrap of this old carrion. Oh, worms! <laughs> Black comrades without eye or ear, here comes a dead man for you. Willing and gay, feasting philosophers, sons born of decay, come burrow through my ruins, shed not a tear, but tell me if any torture is left to dread for this old soulless body, dead as the dead. Hooray. Thank you. Crump made his way to Pennsylvania some week ago. The orange evil, the bloviating fascistic lamb, yam. I just sometimes he's a lamb. He's an embryonic lamb, spat forth by a demon summoned up from the eighth circle of hell. Make no mistake. The devil hath the power to assume a pleasing shape. In this case, the devil has made himself evident and obvious. Misogyny, Islamophobia, homophobia, Latinphobia, and uh, bigotry uh, 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 and white supremacy are evil. Stupidity is forgiven, always. The lack of knowledge is economic, social, whatever. Ignorance is willful and learned. And those who purport and those who support and those who um, insist that evil be done, um, uh, a special place um, will be theirs. This is what uh, Crump said when he went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg, that most hallowed place where tens and twenties and thirties of thousands of people were casualties. If you don't know what Gettysburg is, on the, um, was it 2nd of July it commenced? A Confederate raiding party was in a small town just outside of Gettysburg in a shack and they were looking for shoes because the Confederates were poorly equipped and a Union uh, unit found them there and a firefight started and that exploded into a three-day battle that was the giantest one of the war that finished on the 4th of July 1863 simultaneously with the time that Grant 
um, took Vicksburg after a long and terrible siege where the people of Vicksburg uh, in our, our own country were forced to eat rats and dogs and, uh, 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 and surrendered on that day. And Gettysburg, uh, Robert E. Lee was there, of course, and commanding the um, Army of Virginia. And uh, on that terrible day, and on those terrible days, uh, tens of thousands of people perished. Um, one unit from the South um, had 100% casualties. 100%. That means everyone was killed or wounded in a unit. That's the kind of terrible firefight that went on for three fucking days. Understand about the Civil War. There was photography and there was telegraphy. So messages could be transmitted instantaneously by telegraph across the country. And photographs could be published in newspapers the next morning. No, they didn't have Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Periscope. But they were able the next morning to view carnage and read stories, first-hand reports about what happened on the field. And that's the kind of intimacy that the Civil War has, aside from the fact that it was literally cousin against cousin, brother against brother. You've heard the whole fucking story a thousand times. Um, the importance of this cannot be diminished in America in so much as the Civil War was fought for several reasons. One, to abolish slavery and to institutionalize it into a prison system so that it would carry on to this day. And fuck yes it was. And secondly, um, the bravery of people on both sides is unquestioned. Um, we're all Americans and there's no reason to set two against one another. I believe that um, people who believe whatever they believe, even if they're Trumpkins or, or Bernie bots or Hillcats or whomever you be, uh, if you're a Jill Stein person and you're wandering in the wilderness and you haven't, <laughs> all you want to do is feed mealworms to your fucking coolie loach or whatever, I, I understand. And if you're Gary Johnson people and you're a white guy and you're angry and you live in a trailer, I get it. I get it. You have a tire swing and you shoot road signs and I think that's awesome about you. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to make no judgment about everyone because I really truly believe uh, that we all have more in common than we don't and that the only way forward in this country is uh, when someone is elected, be they whomever, um, when W was elected, I wasn't fucking happy, I'll tell you that. And I spent eight years railing against the uh, inconceivable chicanery, um, absolute genocide, and um, uh, false premises that many wars were fought on. However, um, I did not um, uh, commit any violent acts, and uh, uh, sedition, sedition is um, fruitless in so many ways. Are you saying we shouldn't fight for what we want? No. I'm saying that everyone brave stood for what they wanted all the time. That's why uh, women have the vote. That's why people have civil rights. That's why there's a peace movement and at all. Um, because uh, brave people were able to come forward. Um, by the way, dig. We're at the end of eight years of a black man whose father was born in Kenya being president. If that's not progress after Andrew Jackson, I don't know what is. <laughs> Having said that, uh, Crump represents a lot of terrible, backward, uh, recherche, awful, reaching uh, things that speak to uh, a, um, an enormous uh, reservoir of fear and uh, terror that uh, um, terror that uh, um, oughtn't be dipped into and that is a very dangerous precedent. We've seen it happen a thousand times before. 
um, not only in our country, but of course in other countries. Um, we saw England vote for the Brexit earlier this year, which was a dire mistake that they've acknowledged immediately. Um, they were ashamed of themselves, and, and quite rightly, um, we're ashamed of them. Uh, as yeah, um, uh, Trump promised a couple of weeks ago this would be Brexit times whatever, whatever the horrible phrase he says bigly. <laughs> Let me read you this first, before we even start. It's only a couple minutes long, and I'm sorry. I know I've read you Baudelaire, and I know I read you Shakespeare. But now I'm going to read you Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican. And his greatest moment, of course, is the moment that he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, having a war with the Confederacy was something that he felt he needed to do. Um, uh, absolving the writ of habeas corpus for the duration of the war was an extraordinary executive maneuver. That meant that he could jail anyone that he found was disagreeing with him at any time. And, yeah. Abraham Lincoln is a complex individual. However, we all know that his, heart, uh, his heart's in the right place, and that's why he's on both the penny and the five. <laughs> he did not write the Gettysburg Address on the train. Trains were far too bumpy. It was a couple of days after the battle, and there were many speakers on the day, and tens of thousands of people were gathered. Everett, Edward Everett Hale spoke for several hours, which was uh, what people expected in those days, declamation, much like my show. They never shut up, and they were completely <laughs> self-absorbed. And Lincoln came up, and he had notes, and you've seen that picture in Ken Burns' documentary. He's out of focus and has a high hairline because the camera, the photographer that was there, didn't have time to set up. Lincoln strode right to the stage and spoke for three minutes and then fucked off. And everyone thought he would speak for several hours, but he penned a couple of quick lines. I'm going to read it to you because then we're going back to Crump. There's many copies too, by the way. There's copies that he wrote before he gave the speech. There's copies that he gave afterward and they're, never mind. <laughs> Um, in the end, Abraham Lincoln is a right guy. Um, he was a corporate lawyer. Does that sound familiar? And, uh, yeah. Uh, he traveled around Illinois in a wagon that was far too small for him and slept in beds that were far too short for him and um, had an, a law office in Springfield that had files everywhere and shit everywhere. And his cousin worked for him and, and, and a, a, a friend. And he had a box in his office that said on a sign... If you can't find it anywhere else, look here. Abra yeah. Abraham Lincoln was a real person. Uh, and uh, he really existed. And um, if you go to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., you can see his Brooks Brothers coat with the Brooks Brothers logo in it. And there's blood all over it. And I wept when I saw it. Um, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that this nation, that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men 
living in debt, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they have fought here and have thus sown far and nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. That's how long his speech was. Um, Donald Crump said, every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. Total fabrication. These events never happened. Never. All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. He also called it hollowed ground because he does not know the difference between hallowed and hollowed. <laughs> That's the state we're in right now. Um, he said this, and um, um, Jennifer sent me this. It's from uh, Christina Wilkie on uh, Twitter. Gloria Allred, who, as you know, is defending Jessica Drake, the latest woman to come forward and say that uh, Crump has sexually harassed her. We know that he is a harasser of women. We know that he is a predator of women. We know that he disrespects women. During the last debate, he said, such a nasty woman. Um, if anyone can still do the gyrations, uh, the gymnastic mental gyrations that are required, as Orwell would say, in doublethink, to hold two absolutely opposite ideas truthful simultaneously. The people who are voting for the Crump uh, are able to at, one, at once uh, understand that he uh, is a molester of women and at the same time go, I don't care, I want him to be president of the United States. Um, that to me is an enormous gymnastic gyration that I am not willing to make. I understand why other people have made it. I don't approve. And if that makes me wrong, I don't want to be Keith Oberman about this. I don't want to be, I don't want to be Jeremiah, uh, the, the, the biggest bummer of all the prophets. <laughs> That's why we like Jesus, because he brought the good news. <laughs> Gloria Allred, who takes out many women's cases, said this about that quote. I'm going to sue. What was it? All of these liars will be sued after the election is over. Allred said, if you sue accusers, their lawyers will have the opportunity to depose you under oath. If you don't know what that means, I worked in a law office as a Schmendrick in the early 80s. Um, one of the lawyers in our office um, uh, had defended Sarah Jane Moore who shot at Gerald Ford in front of the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. Frank Bell was his name. And he also um, defended Sonny Barger, who was the head of the Hells Angels, who are a hellacious uh, methamphetamine-dealing uh, giant drug gang uh, from the 60s and 70s that dominated Oak, the East Bay and uh, the Bay Area in general. 
I used to go into Frank Bell's office when I was 22 years old and smoke cigarettes with him. And he would tell me stories about how he was appointed by Reagan and how... <laughs> when he was governor. And, uh, <laughs> and, and how he defended Sarah Jane Moore. And I was riveted, of course. Um, <laughs> a deposition is when you're in a legal case and you're called in and you're taken to a room and you're sat down and a lawyer questions you about the matter at hand, which means, in Crump's case, and a, 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 a recorder is there, right? Taking down every word you say. And if you've ever seen a deposition, they're long and boring and they're written in legalese and they're written in those giant paragraphs that all legal papers are written in with the enormous headings on top. I was a schmender, so I had to copy these fuckers. I was so bored at one point that I actually pretended to die and I laid on the floor for hours. And no one in my law office came in to check on me. I made paperclip jewelry, cat chains and whatnot. I, I, I would fax my butt. I mean, it was just like... I was 22 years old trying to be a comedian. I was so fucking bored. But some of the lawyers were quite fascinating. Um, law, oh my goodness. It's like Dickens. It really is. Dickens was right about law. If you've ever read Bleak House, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, right? Generations trying the same case. Um, Gloria Allred, who I've met years ago uh, on a, a television show, and she's formidable, uh, said, if you sue accusers, their lawyers will have the opportunity to depose you. That's a threat from a lawyer. Depose you means I'm taking you into a room and... Whatever you say can be held against you when we go to trial because I can produce your deposition as evidence of what your fucking testimony is. Dig? Um, <laughs> under oath, right? Here's the thing. Hillary's a devil, right? According to Crumb. Hillary should be locked up and put behind bars. Hillary should never have been allowed to run because of all the terrible malfeasance and illegalities she's done. Notwithstanding the fact that Crump has never produced a tax return or paid anyone or done anything but grab women and da-da-da-da. We still take oaths, and oaths are from, let's say generously, before the Middle Ages. That means you raise your right hand and you put your, right? We still take them. When, if you've ever served on a jury, you've taken an oath. It, uh, when you sign things, you take an oath. When, you're, when you write your name on a contract, that is an oath, right? And so we still take them. Uh, in the old days, it would be you'd put a ring on or you'd, or, or you'd, or you'd uh, put your finger in a thing and uh, uh, you know, wax and, and seal something, right? You know what I'm talking about. An oath is a sacred thing. Everyone in this room who's married knows what an oath is because everyone in this room has taken an oath for better or for worse till death, till death do us part. And we all still say it. The words are just there and we don't think about them because we're modern and our phones are so important and, our, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and not having an attention span and, uh, and, and, and everything that happens in the modern world. But wearing a golden ring around your finger and saying till death do us part is a very important oath that needs to be observed, right? The people who don't do it, <clears throat> in other words, people who are married and hit on porn stars and offer them $10,000 to uh, sleep with them. And then uh, eventually the adult film stars come forward. And Jessica Drake, 
uh, much to her enormous and everlasting credit, said, I'm not suing him. I simply wanted to add my voice to all of the other women who have come forward. Coming forward as a woman and telling uh, your story that a man has harassed you, a man has molested you, a man has groped you, a man has sexually assaulted you is the most difficult thing in this society. It's difficult for us to talk about now. The crowd is dead quiet. It's difficult for us to talk about as human beings, and there's no reason for it. It needs to be frank and firm and upfront and fucking honest. And this election is... This election is the plebiscite. This election is the defining moment that that changes. I bloody well hope and I fervently wish. Um, there's no reason that anyone, male or female, who's been accosted, molested, or... Uh, and I know something else when I'm talking about this. It's not just a random thing, and it's not just something that happens to someone else. And I know I'm speaking to you, the listener, and I'm speaking to everyone in this room. When I say most sincerely that all of us have experienced this, and if we haven't experienced personally, we've experienced it through our brother, our sister, our friend, our, our, our whomever. And therefore, as human beings, not to be in the abstract and the absolute direct, we can empathize. First person. Sexual assault, groping, and uh, harassment are not on in any fucking way. And that people who do have to be castigated and have to be absolutely um, sought out and a, a light shown on them. It is not cool in any way, fucking shape or form. And this is what men need to get their fucking head around immediately. And I'm not just talking about my white bros. I'm talking about every man on earth. And I'm talking about every man in the United States. Um, you know it happens. Um, nice tits. Why don't you smile? Uh, nice ass. Oh, she's fat, but I'd fuck her. You know what I'm fucking talking about. And it's a plague and it's a blight and the abuse of women and the denigration of women and the um, uh, making women less than a person is absolutely one, uh, not on, and two, what this election is about in so many ways. You can parse it any fucking way you like. You can go, Hillary has her moments where she's not as moral as she might be. Hooray. Who fucking Ray? She's not doing anything any man hasn't ever done. I've described to you what Andrew Jackson said. And Andrew Jackson's on the $20 fucking bill. He's venerated. <laughs> Women have to be given the opportunity to be as mediocre as men. Women have to give, be given the opportunity to be as grand as men. The first woman president is the most overqualified woman I've ever fucking seen in my life. Her resume is amazing. This is the moment, you guys. This is the moment. There's nothing but good that can come out of this. Enormous volcanoes full of starburst are going to explode into an everlasting galaxy where butterscotch slides into fudge pools of enormous fucking positivity or what is our future. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He's imposing his male toxicity on all of us. This is the death knell of the orange white man. 
further. He keeps talking about voter fraud and that it's a real thing. Voter fraud is not a real thing. Voter suppression is a real thing. North Carolina, Ohio, Texas, Oklahoma, I can name all the states for you. You know what the deal is. Many states have tried to remove people from the rolls, uh, demonize people who have a prison record, whatnot. This is to keep students, black people, old people from voting in primary. People of color are who they do not want to vote because when people of color vote and women vote, the world gets saved. Um, white men are not going to save the world, I'm sorry to say. Women and people of color are going to save the world. A law professor from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles found 31 incidents of general, primary, special, and municipal voter fraud out of a billion. So when you hear him talking about um, there's voter fraud, there is no voter fraud. This is a myth like tax breaks for the wealthy, like war is good, like anyone who works hard enough can fucking pull themselves up, like uh, all lives matter. This is a myth that people keep uh, promulgating and propagating, and it's not true. Um, Like all of the lies he spiels, um, this is one to stoke white fear. And what it's done, and this makes my heart leap into the air like a fucking chameleon, is... Do chameleons leap? Bilby. Like a bilby. <laughs> What's this done is um, um, Republicans have dropped um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% in their um, attitude toward voting in this election because they feel their vote won't count. Trump has hammered the fucking voter fraud thing so hard that they're like, well, fuck it. Why should we vote? I'm telling you that when you go to the voting booth and you're private in the voting booth and you don't have to tell anyone who you voted for. It is the most private of acts, like praying or masturbating. (laughs) When one touches oneself, you needn't confess what you were thinking of. As Billie Holiday said, ain't nobody's business if I do. Voting is exactly the same. And I'm very serious about that. Um, I want everyone to do the right thing. But I would never force you to do the right thing. I would only urge you, as Lincoln said, to seek out the better angels of your nature. We're all trying to be our own hero. We all fail. And that's cool, because we're human. Failure is endemic. It's all right if you don't make it all the time. It's all right if you don't live up to your own standards. You have to understand you're okay. You also have to understand that when you're faced with something like this, a very real measure of reality that's going to be dealt to the country. When a guy comes along like this who's as sexist and terrible and divisive, it's important, as we say in Yiddish, to be a mensch. That means a human being, not a man. A mensch is not a man. A mensch is a human being. A human being has feelings. A human being has empathy. Empathy is more important than almost anything else, really. Um, We can express our empathy. We can express our empathy. We can touch one another with our empathy um, and all that. Uh, I have a whole bunch of crappy shit uh, that he said, uh, and I'm not going to talk about it. I was going to, and I was going to go through it bit by bit because it was so bloody awful, but I'm not. Instead, let's talk about a pleasant topic. Uh, Not that we haven't, because I feel like Um, uh, you've understood uh, exactly what I'm saying Um, 
Life is a, a bunch of flowers waiting to bloom. Life is um, a still lake waiting for you to skip a rock across it. Life is a bunch of clouds fleeing across the sun. When I woke up here today in Bellingham, I wasn't in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a dog-eat-dog um, miasma of self-interest and me first uh, nonsense in the show business sense. When I woke up here today and uh, the fog shrouded the sun as it so often does, <laughs> I took a walk around Bellingham and I had a coffee and whatnot and I called Jennifer and I saw the sun come up and the seagulls keening and whirling over the uh, inlet and the train choo-chooed by, which it does here, waking me up every fucking three hours. <laughs> and I saw the white people in their hoodies and polar fleeces. And I went to your pubs and I went to your artisanal bars. And my heart was lifted because um, the moon and the stars are eternal. And um, our time here is ephemeral. We fight and we fuss and we fulminate and we make all this work for ourselves. We make all this grief for ourselves. We allow our emotions to run rampant because there's so many people that don't put forward ideas of positivity and they are hateful and you know, difficult for us to swallow. Um, having said that, um, walking around today, the air smells good here. You're so lucky. You have recreational marijuana. Hooray for you. You have a co-op and old-fashioned hamburger stands. That's inescapable. Um, there's people everywhere who wish they had what you had, and therefore fortune should not be lost on you. And the perfection of a leaf on the ground and the uh, uh, mist in the air flying across the sun and the keening of the seagulls should not be lost on you either. We're put here uh, by she who gave the world life. God. God's a woman. And uh, really, I thought God was a white bearded guy played by Anthony Hopkins. I thought God was Morgan Freeman. <laughs> God is Jessica Drake. Uh, God is honesty. Uh, God is um, uh, the connection, of anim the anima that binds us, homo sapiens one, to another. So, having said that, a cat is swirling in the heavens, um, whom I knew. And uh, he was my friend. I saw him about a year and a half so ago in New York City, and we talked about Robin's, uh, Robin Williams' untimely demise. He's from San Francisco he, via Boston. Um, part of the a giant group of Boston comics that came to San Francisco in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Dana Gould, Tom Kenny, uh, Dan Spencer, Paul Kozlowski, um, uh, Paula Poundstone, whatnot. They're all uh, enormously um, important comedians and tremendous human beings. His name was Kevin Meany. And uh, he was silly more than any other comic. He uh, had very short hair, and he was uh, uh, an Irish guy from Boston. And when I first saw him, when I was, this is a long time ago, when I was in my early 20s and started doing stand-up comedy, he would go on stage and grab his hair and go like this. 
All the men come in this place and the manor. Look, he would do Tina Turner. I'm your private dancer. Um, he was uh, one of uh, nature's gentlemen. Uh, Kevin Meany was a prince. And uh, he uh, took to the heavens a couple of days ago uh, while we were doing a show in Seattle. And uh, there's no... Uh, in comedy, when you uh, uh, walk on, there's only a couple of things anyone can say about you that are important. One, uh, that he was funny. That's always good. Or she was funny. That, that you were funny as a comedian. I, I hope people think that at the end. And please don't show the fucking Richard Simmons clip from Who's Line When I Die. <laughs> I know it was funny and I know I laughed and I said I'm so happy and shit. That's not my greatest comedy moment. <laughs> Let me just say it here and now. I loved the moment. It was a great moment. It was really funny. Richard looked like he was blowing Colin for a while and oh my God. I've said funnier things. I've done funnier things. I've been a comic for a hundred fucking years. Please find another clip to show. I know that's the one they're going to show. I know that's the one they're going to show. I know it. I have no control over it. I have no control. Control. Control this. Nasty. The name's Hillary. Madam Secretary, if you're nasty. <laughs> Kevin Meany uh, was as kind and gentle and effusive and hilarious and sensitive and wonderful as any comedian I've ever met. Jim Samuels, who passed away some 35 years ago now, was one of nature's gentlemen as well. Something that will not be said about every comedian is that they were a kind, wonderful, warm human being. I don't know that that'll be said about me and I don't bloody care. However, I can think of several people, uh, of course, Joan Rivers, whom I had the absolute pleasure to have acquaintance with and knew her as a friend. Robin Williams, who I knew. And they were both, if you knew them, you would love them. They were extraordinary people. They gave and they gave and they gave. There wasn't anything they didn't give. Whether you thought they were funny or not is irrelevant to the fact that they were encouraging to other comedians in their realm. Uh, and Kevin Meaning, getting back to him and the case at hand. Having met him when I was a kid and having known him for ages and having seen him several times over the years and, of course, in New York City where he lived, or, or he lived in New York um, a year and a half ago, and him and I sat down and chatted. And the familiarity, the love, the magnificence. He was married and he had a child with his wife. Then he came out to her as a gay man. One of the jokes he did in the show I was hosting which was for this, like, website, you know, video thing. He came out and he went, oh, so, oh, I can't remember the football player, Katz. Uh, uh, the football player came out as gay, and he goes, you think coming out uh, as a football player is uh, difficult? Try coming out to your wife. <laughs> Not as fucking profound. In any case... Um, a lot of comics around the country uh, knew Kevin, and uh, he was uh, very influential in all of our lives. If you have a chance, go on YouTube and watch a clip by Kevin Meany called We Are The World. 
Um, if you're not young, uh, old enough to remember, We Are the World was an 80s thing where Bruce Springsteen and uh, uh, Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, Deanne Warwick, uh, Willie Nelson, whatnot, sang this giant song, of, uh, Bob Dylan, sang a song about charity, about starving children and shit. <laughs> Quincy Jones produced it, and Kevin did a magnificent routine where he would have the glasses and he'd do Stevie Wonder and then he'd do uh, Michael Jackson and he'd do Willie Nelson and whatnot. I saw him do it live. To see him do it live was an absolute tour de force. Um, go home and watch it. Um, you'll thank me for it. Um, Kevin Meany brought nothing but joy to the world. And as a comic, uh, I know I don't do that. And as a comic, <laughs> there's no higher calling, right? As a musician, there's nothing better than uh, all your favorites, the ones you love, whomever they are. Uh, uh, whether they're Justin Bieber or Van Morrison or Aretha, yeah, Aretha Franklin or, or, or Janelle Monet, whoever it is that rings your bell, whoever it is that dunks your donut, whoever it is that crisps your bacon, whoever it is that takes the purple Skittle and fucking flings it into your mouth. Um, it's not so much what they say as Maya Angelou said. It, it, people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you acted. And uh, there's nothing more profound than that. Um, Kevin Meany reached to the heart of comedy because the heart of comedy is just lightness and, uh, and like that. Um, anyway, I'm going to play some Kevin Meany here. Pete, spin that cut. Uh, you've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out. I hope every page tricks you when you stop the page. Cool Papa Bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. Good night, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>